me, AB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours, the weekly higher education podcast. Whether you work in higher education or not, you've likely come across some kind of news story, social media posts about campuses welcoming back students over the last few weeks. All schools, whether you read about them or not, put a tremendous amount of time, effort into planning for the start of the fall, and then into finally welcoming back students in one way, shape, or form. On today's episode, Carla Hickman is back and joined by two key figures from the University of Kentucky, Executive Vice President for Finance and Administration, Dr. Eric Monday, and Athletic Director, Mitch Barnard, to talk through how's the fall semester going so far. They'll share the stories of their summer efforts of bringing together 500 students, faculty, and staff into how to safely reopen campus, as well as another important topic, college athletics. UK, as a part of the SEC, worked with the conference's medical task force to enable students to return to competition. Mr. Barnett's going to talk about that experience, along with what was learned from professional sports to give UK a chance to get back out on the playing fields. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. All right, well, hello, everyone, and I want to welcome you back to another Office Hours conversation. This is Carla Hickman. I'm the Vice President for Research Strategy here at EAB. Today, we're in for a treat. I am joined by two very special guests from the University of Kentucky, Dr. Eric Monday, who serves as the Executive Vice President for Finance and Administration, and Mitch Barnhart, who's the Athletics Director for the Kentucky Wildcats Athletics Program. So gentlemen, welcome. Um, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. How are you doing this afternoon? Well, great, glad to be with you. Well, as I said, we absolutely appreciate your time uh, and your willingness to give us insight especially as the University of Kentucky, like all higher education institutions, has been weathering this pandemic and all that it has meant, all the uncertainty that we are facing and you're facing as, as administrators. Um, we've spent some time trying to think through you know, what a new academic year and a new fall term would be, but one of the issues we haven't touched on quite as much on office hours yet is what that means for student athletes. Uh, what that means for their experience and for how important athletics programs are for university life. So looking forward to hearing how the University of Kentucky has been approaching uh, the decisions that need to be made as you start a new academic year, and then especially what that's meant for your athletics programs this year too. So I thought I'd get started, you know, like most institutions in higher ed, uh, Kentucky decided to move up the start of your fall term. So I understand that class is in session. Uh, students are certainly back on campus. Eric, how's it going so far? Well, we're 15 days into this 100-day odyssey that we look at in the fall semester. So it's 100 days from when we started a few weeks ago until the Wednesday before Thanksgiving when our students will move out of the residence halls. So uh, a good start. Now we did a baseline test of every single student on the campus. It gave us a nice baseline for how we're looking from a testing standpoint. We've implemented our contact tracing, our daily attestation practices. We have a number of classes that are still on site. We have a number that are hybrid and online as well. A good mix for students to respond to their needs. Uh, physically distanced uh, in a positive behavior, positive pressure campaign about healthy behaviors throughout the campus. So uh, we like the beginning. We still got a long way to go and, and we know the unknowns are greater than the knowns, but we're focused on, as our president likes to say, focused on making it easy to be safe for our mm -hmm. students, our faculty, our staff. You know, I know a lot of campuses were wondering what would enrollment look like 
So would students make the choice to come back? And I heard some good news from Kentucky's early numbers. I know we all have to wait until October to see the final headcount, but it looks like total enrollment up overall. Um, and I was really impressed, Eric. It looked like you had a really strong retention rate. So a lot of your last year's first-year students coming back. Is there anything particular in the way that you all approach the spring and summer that you'd credit that to, giving confidence to students that coming back this year was a good choice? We try to over-communicate at a level in the last five months, four months, we have communicated more directly with our faculty, our staff, our students than we, we probably communicated in the last few years. So very focused, very large, big table. So we had over 500 faculty, staff, and our students involved in the planning efforts for this fall. Some of our retention gains are, are related to our years of work and some good advice and counsel by EAB and over those years, but we're up uh, almost five points just in the last four years on first to second year retention at about mid 86s, well on our way. We wanna to get to obviously a 90% goal is what we'd like to see at least 87 in the next year or two. So good progress on that, but uh, I think over communication, setting the table for easy to be safe, showing that UK cares and understanding that all of our decisions were based on how do we build that best environment for their success. So pleased with the numbers so far, as you, as you noted, we got to wait till October, but it's the largest, uh, largest uh, total size of an institution at over 31,000 that we've been, and we're pleased with all the, the negative headwinds or the challenging headwinds in American higher education, that we've got a good start, we got we to gotta finish, but uh, we like where we are. I mean, you've alluded to some of the, the groundwork that I know started well before the spring, but certainly in the spring. And you mentioned, uh, you know, how do we create an environment of health and safety protocols? I'm sure there was enormous amount of planning and conversations that went into that. Um, reading some of the headlines of other institutions who've sort of struggled as students have come back with how do you think about the ways to create a positive culture where people take personal responsibility but also understand their role in the collective health and safety, uh, not just of UK, but Lexington, the broader community that you're part of. Um, where do you all sort of stand? I heard you allude a little bit to UK safe, but what does that look like in practice uh, for your students? Sure, I, it's, it's some of the same things we're seeing everywhere, uh, but you know, it's how do we think about being protect? How do we respect? How do we stay six feet apart? How are we washing our hands more frequently? And how do we have those available whether it's messaging, whether it's signage, whether it's, of course, the, the devices and the, and the hand sanitizer and all those different things right there where it's easily to uh, be accessible for our students, faculty, and staff. But it, it's how we're looking at healthy behaviors. We've taken the, the strategy that we're going to reinforce the positive. We're going to go peer to peer. So we're utilizing our student body president. We're utilizing students to talk to fellow students. And, and we have our challenges just like everyone else. And, and we are having those in certain areas of our campus, like those headlines across. Our students want to be social. They have not seen each other since March in a physical way for many of them. So we have to create those environments. So for example, we'll show in movies on the lawn on a regular basis. And before they get there, we have the blanket spaced out every six feet. Right? So we're trying to make it easy and trying to be intuitive to the best we can to make it safe. But uh, that's that's been our strategy. We've had a campaign theme uh, that we've utilized and, and that theme is built on community. It's a collective effort 
and one that's not just to the campus, to your good point, Carla, but the community and the surrounding area of Lexington as well. I often think about the role that a university like UK plays for that broader community, your place of work and employment, your you know, students are going into businesses, they're part of the community fabric. And so I love hearing that reminder to them that it is this collective and personal responsibility that hopefully gets us through. Uh, Mitch, I'd love to hear from you a little bit. Health and safety certainly takes on a different uh, tone in some degrees when we think about our student athletes, our coaches, your athletic staff. Is it the same approach when it comes to University of Kentucky athletics, or are there some different ways that you've thought about approaching health and safety for your students? I think ours is there's ours is uh, layered a little bit differently, but along the same lines. When you talk about being a part of a 14-team conference like the Southeastern Conference, it's a little bit different because ours involves traveling across state lines. It involves traveling into other communities to participate in competitions. And, and now all of a sudden the protocols are different from place to place and spot to spot. And so we've got a lot of things that, that, that come into play. Now we're also bringing fans into play of people that are coming from many, many different places. And you talk about officials and people that, that work these, these games. So we've got a lot of pieces that have to come into play. And I think that's why we were, um, when you look back um, in mid-March when everything sort of came to a screeching halt on about March 12th, as I recall, um, it was April, mid-April, uh, we were one of the leads in the, in the country in the Southeastern Conference to put together a medical working group. And so one person from every institution was put on a task force, a medical task force, uh, 12 of those were in, uh, doctors, most of them are infectious disease doctors from institutions, and two boots on the ground, what I would call boots on the ground, uh, medical trainers that were medical officers in athletic departments. They put together protocols for us that were critically important for us to be able to do two things. One was return to activity, and that was how did we safely bring our young people back to our campus to be able to get them acclimatized to participate in sports that they love and they want to participate in, safely do that, bringing them back to a campus where they would be put on a campus where in many cases during the month of June, most of those campuses were shut down. They weren't even open. Mm -hmm. so we had to work closely with our university and closely with our medical community. And then the last piece was how to return to competition. So those are two different things. Return to activity was just returning. How do we get you ready? Return to competitions. How do we integrate that into a a position where we're playing games and we bring in, we're bringing people together from different different communities across a very, very, very large footprint. Yeah, it's no, it uh, won't be any secret to my EAB colleagues that I'm a huge sports fan. I often laugh and say kind of like you mark the passage of time by the start and end of these seasons in a lot of ways. Um, so I've been really interested in seeing how professional athletic conferences have been approaching this decision-making, Major League Baseball, the NBA sort of taking different approaches. Are any lessons learned from some of the professional athletes for collegiate athletics? Yeah, I think there's lots of lessons to be learned. One is the medical procedures and the protocols they've put in place. The other one is just the way you're able to put the, the events on, and they are very different. Uh, they're very different. And so um, for us, we have taken um, opportunities to watch um, each of those organizations. The PGA was the first for they and uh, PGA Tour and then uh, NASCAR were really the first two to come out with events early on and say, we're going to try. Uh, they had 30,000 people in Bristol for a, a NASCAR race. Um, and as the research would indicate that as people left that, that pocket, um, there wasn't any uptick or spike in, in the virus. So really important to take some protocols for what they did at a place that seats well over 100,000, many of uh, social distancing, all those pieces of the puzzle were in place. 
protocols for the drivers and the, and the workers and all the officials that came into um, Bristol from other areas. And you had the PGA Tour and how did they approach it? And so, yeah, we took lessons from all those people. We're obviously, we're getting updated testing procedures and protocols. There's Now there's all sorts of technology about how long you're you're close to someone. You're close to someone for longer than 15 minutes and you get a beeping device. I mean, there's all sorts of things out there that that our medical people are just ratcheting up the information and we're going to get to a spot where we're going to kick this thing off and get going in some of our sports. But I truly believe that we've had the best ramp up of, of anyone. I, I'm biased, um, but I love what our, our medical task force has given us and how hard they've worked at it and integrated very, very closely with the ADs, with the presidents, and, and they've been fully uh, informed and invested in the decisions we've been making. I love that example. I often think too, um, NASCAR is a great one. Just really thinking about the fans as another component of that and the outdoor events and all the learning that's going to be going on. So it sounds like great collaboration across your colleagues in the Southeastern Conference. And I imagine that we'll learn as we go. Um, we'll give it a try and, and we'll be able to adjust as we learn things and as competition kicks off. I think your football team is scheduled uh, probably counting down in days now, not weeks. So we're getting close and I'm sure the basketball season is uh, discussions underway about what that might look like. I often feel bad too because we talk football and basketball, but you all have 21 different uh, athletics programs. So I know there are a lot of different considerations given the, the various sports that you support. Yeah, there's some what they would call what uh, the, the NCAA has bracketed them into three or four different groups. One is a high risk sport um, in terms of contact and, and, and physical contact, then you've got some medium risk and low risk. And some of those, you, know, you can do the math. The low risk sport would be golf. You're out in the middle of a very wide expanse and you're not close to anyone and you can sort of very easily stay socially distant. And, and there's a way to do that. Football, basketball, volleyball, some of those become more high risk sports in the exchange of, of, of sweat and, and some of those very, very difficult interactions, um, you know, it puts a little more high risk. So you have to think about how you do that. And so then all the, the things that come into play as it relates to disruptions and teams not being able to travel and you have too many people you've had to quarantine. And those those are all part of conversations that we get to and and are very complicated. We've never had to go down this path before. That has not been a part of our DNA, um, but it is this time. And, and so it is uh, something that we're learning on the fly. And to your point, um, and a really good one. Uh, we will adjust as we go. and We're going to have to gather more information as we go. And uh, the NFL is getting ready to crank up. We'll have an opportunity to watch them uh, very, very closely and what they're doing with their fan protocols, as well as their their game protocols and, their, and all the things they're doing with their, with their athletes. And um, so it, it is an ongoing deal. Uh, NHL hockey is going now. And, and so it is a, certainly a contact sport. And that's a so we're watching all of those and, and anxious to, we're just anxious to return our student athletes to some sense of normalcy. They love to compete. And there has been no mistaking that they want to get out there and compete. And so uh, the notion of, um, you know, there's a, there is, uh, there's protocols we must put in place to keep them safe, but either make no mistake about it, our, our young people want to play. You know, Eric, your point was how often the student leaders have been involved in all of the health and safety protocols, imagine your student athlete leaders have absolutely been part of the conversations uh, across as well. Um, you know, one of the other things that I've been thinking quite a bit about, we get a lot of questions here on the AB is, as you start athletics this year, I think there are a lot of misperceptions and misunderstandings about what it takes to have an athletic program, uh, especially one of the caliber of division one. And so I hoped we could explore just a little bit you know, how the financial aspect of your athletics program is going to look different in the COVID era than it normally would. 
um, actually read a report lately that I don't know that many people have found that the NCAA's research arm actually does a fantastic report that helps you understand uh, revenues and expenses. Actually, I think people would be surprised. There are only a handful of schools where their generated revenues outpace their expenses overall. Um, typically, we're finding ways to sort of offset uh, either through activity fees or direct university support. But I would think that revenue and expense conversation, Eric, would look a little bit different in the COVID era um, for athletics in particular. Um, maybe some new expenses you'll have to incur given all the health and safety protocols or sources of revenue that may not be the same as they would have been uh, pre-COVID. Can you give us a little more insight and how do you think about the financial side of the picture? Yeah, I think Mitch, uh, Mitch can address this too, Carla. I think uh, there's a lot of interaction and in some ways it's maybe larger at the institutional level and smaller at the athletic level. And then sometimes it's exactly the opposite. If we think, and Mitch can address the, the health and safety of our athletes and let's say the football program or the fall sports that the SEC has talked through institutionally, you know, we're in the eight digits of expenditures just relating to testing, tracing. We've stood up a 25 person health core that's focused on contact tracing and isolation and quarantining strategies for the entire student body. We work with Mitch and some of his leaders in, in the medical area to help isolate and quarantine within our athletic programs as well. And so when you think about at the institutional level, definitely there, there are some pretty significant expenditures. We have this philosophy and it is dates back to how we manage incidents at the University of Kentucky. And so we talk about over-communication, we talk about big table, we talk about emergency operations center that's been open since March. We talk about communication meetings where we've met 50 and 60 times already so far this year. And we always say that finances come second. So we are focused on safety, we're focused on the health, we're focused on finishing on November 25th and finance comes second. So we are aware of them, we spend time looking at them and analyzing and understanding the different revenues and expenditures, but we're gonna put that second and put health and safety first. I know from the interaction between Mitch and I talking about finances has a lot to do with our media rights and, and mm -hmm. how we think about multimedia, how we think about some of our contractual relationships and how those may adjust, how we're thinking about licensing is a conversation that Mitch and I've had to talk about just with how our trademark programs work and so on, our bookstores and so on. So uh, yeah, there is a, to your point, Carla, it is a different environment. There's gonna be higher levels of expenditures in some ways, there's gonna be less opportunities and there's fixed costs. Even when you're bringing in, let's say a portion of a fan base, the fixed costs are the fixed costs. So uh, it has led to a lot more interactions and conversations to think about how we're best positioned for the future. And just to, to sort of add on it, there's there's multiple. There's um, you know, when you think about the different places that we have to get support from and the things that we do, we're we're fortunate. I think we've been a long time. Um, I would say givers to the university. We've been partners. We uh, there's different things that we've done. We give money to a to fund a science building on campus. Uh, we give money to academic scholarships on campus, and that's been a part. We've not. We got out of the student fee business a long time ago, so we have, we don't take student fee money. We have a different relationship as it relates to the, the way we access students access our program, and so uh, we've tried to do that. We tried to stand on our own two feet, or as Eric Eric likes to say, a tub on our own bottom, and we've tried to do that, and uh, um, we've done that effectively well. But there is no question in the COVID era that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna test our metal, 
And uh, we've got some things we're going to have to work our way through, and we don't know what that looks like. But to Eric's point, the finances come second in front of our student athlete safety and, and the experience of our kids. And you know, they've made some decisions at the NCAA level about the ability for a young person to opt out and be able to come back and have an extra year of eligibility. That will impact us financially, but it's the right thing to do. And <laughs> if our people, if they don't feel safe, gives them the opportunity to come back and participate again and get the full experience that they that they expected. And the other piece is simply this. We have incurred some expenses to make sure that we do it right. And so we will institute a third party testing program that will come in and give us um, two to three uh, tests a week for the young people that are in competitive seasons. And some people in low risk sports might go once a week, but we'll make sure that we've got protocols in place through testing, contact tracing, quarantining, all of those pieces that we're not putting somebody out there that's going to put anyone at risk. Um, and we're going to work really hard to try and um, put on an, an event that, uh, um, number one, uh, our people will be able to compete at the highest level, but two, they'll be able to walk out and be healthy. And, and there's, there's risk in every sport that we play. Uh, the, the sports that we play are, are risk for injuries and those kind of things. And we can't take those away. What we can provide is a healthy environment for our, for our young people. Um, I, I was preparing for this conversation today. I realized how often I use sports metaphors in my everyday talk, so forgive me. I'm going to talk about your playbook um, for approaching the COVID era. But anything has changed so far? I mean, we always talk about best laid plans. You do your very best with the information, the data that you have. But as you look at the beginning of the year, is there any places where you've already pivoted or changed the strategy or the approach that you could share with the group? We, we moved from phase one testing into phase two and now phase three very, very quickly, Carlo, probably a little faster than we anticipated. We knew phase one testing all 30,000 or in the end, it was about 25 to 26,000 of our 31 who were eligible. We have about 5,000 students that will not come physically to the campus this fall, online classes or other strategies. So the actual end was around 25,000. That took three weeks, it worked really well. Um, we probably anticipated that we would look at those data and be informed by that and make a phase two testing strategy, I'd say plus two plus three weeks. And we went basically stopped testing on a Sunday. That same day we started testing in phase two because we saw some positivity rates in some uh, segments of our student population. We looked at students who lived on campus. We looked at students in the club sports. We looked at student athletes. We looked at students in fraternity and sorority life and several other categories. And we saw some, um, we don't like to use the word triggers because triggers usually in incident management dumb you down. We mm -hmm. like to look at indicators and things that say, hey, you need to explore that more. So we saw an indicator where the positivity rate in certain segments was three times what it was in those non-student segments. So we immediately went specifically to do a new testing strategy around our fraternity and sorority life members and those who lived on campus in a more communal living environment. And so we just finished that on phase two. In fact, today we're beginning phase three testing, which will be indicated by looking at wastewater. And so we worked within the university with our own faculty, with our own researchers. And that's one of the things we really leaned in on, Carla, is how do we utilize the talent and the skills we already have? Dean DePaulo, our Dean of the College of Medicine, leads our start group that's looking at testing strategies and helps inform what's next. And it's something as simple as hand sanitizer. 
We've produced all of that inside completely vertical within our, our Beam Institute, and, and that's really allowed us to, to do things at a little bit of a faster pace and be best prepared. Our facial masks for our faculty produced in our College of Art Design or College of Design, rather. So those types of things uh, have really helped us. But if you ask me specifically, it's probably how aggressive we had to move into future phases of testing. Interesting. We've talked in earlier episodes about just remembering the public good, the role of higher education, particularly public research universities like the University of Kentucky. And as you were speaking, I thought, how many lessons are to learn for society at large about you know, what you're learning on testing protocols, how you're approaching the, the PPE and the requirements and the social distancing, and what a leadership opportunity, not just for the University of Kentucky, but for um, for all of higher education, how do we tell those stories more often? Are there ways that we can, I guess this is one of them, but how do we tell those stories about all the things we're learning at places like UK to help inform our broader response to the pandemic? Well, our, our, we, we've had an opportunity with uh, a president, Dr. Capilouto, who's a public health expert. He, he's a dentist by training and then has uh, a doctorate in public health and has been a dean of a college of public health before he's a provost and before he's been president here for nine years. And so we, we've been on about every news channel you can, you can name, telling the story, not that we're doing it best, but telling it the process through which we're making the decision. And that understanding of community, of collective, of working together in, in a shared governance model to stress test those ideas, to use the vertical experts we already have. Sometimes we, we always want to go outside rather than staying inside. And how do we think about that collective, our university senate, our staff senate, our student government association? That's really helped us. It's kind of what we've leaned into to really understand what the end in mind has been. And it's been based on that safety and UK cares and getting to, we believe that a residential experience is a defining component. We think that helps build a better environment, better graduates, better students who can lead and, and change the world, if you will. So how are we committed to doing that and, and focused on that every day? So we, we try to tell that story, not from we're the best, but that we have developed a process that we actually, Carla, are going to use for other things on the campus, not just how we've responded to this incident. So that's really helped us to tell the story. Well, I want to turn to both of you just to, I cannot imagine what it has been like. Uh, we've been in sort of crisis management mode now for months on end. Uh, you're starting a new academic year, a new athletics year. It sounds like things are going well, but what's giving you the most hope and optimism, either for the fall term or just as we continue on the road in this new year? What's, what's keeping you motivated or preventing that burnout that we're reading so much about? I think it's, you know, my hope or my, I guess my encouragement always comes with the young people we work with. I mean, it, when it's, when you're away from them and you're distant from them and it is on a Zoom call or it is, uh, you know, they're, they're not in your, in your facilities and not working out and there's no energy, it, it, that, it drains you pretty well. I will tell you, there's not, it's really hard to stay motivated. Um, I will say that for our coaches and for our staff, when we saw the young people come back, we saw them back in our weight rooms and we saw them back on the, on the fields and we saw them back working and uh, their enthusiasm for what they did. And, but more importantly, the care with which they came back and how they did it was amazing. I mean, we've had, we haven't been perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I'll tell you, we, our, our young people have been really good. 
and uh, we've they they bought in uh, to the mask. They bought into being socially distant. They bought into the protocols we've asked them to. And so, have we had some positives? Absolutely, we've had some positive. But as you look at it and the things that they have done, um, there's where my encouragement is uh, that they they have listened, and they said, you know what, the the greater good of what we're trying to get to is important to us. And so. Uh, I will tell you this, and I'm, this is the athletic director and me talking. We got some really good teams, and I uh, this may be the best collection of student athletes we've ever had at the University of Kentucky in my time in tw almost 20 years of being here. And and uh, it's as, as good a looking group, top to bottom, 500 strong as I think we've ever had. And so my encouragement to them, if you really, if it means something to you, and you want to make a run at things that are special in your lives, and you walk away from this thing knowing that that uh, it was the best you could do, then, then we've got to buy into these things. And they have done that. And so that's my encouragement. Uh, the fatigue that has caused our staff, everybody thinks, oh, you're in pandemic. You got time off. You're good. You don't, you're not doing anything. And um, I, I laugh a little bit of that. I think this has been one of the more difficult stretches for our staff they've ever been through in terms of preparation. Eric can, Eric can attest to that as well in terms of things that are going on at the university. Our staff has been totally invested in trying to make this a safe deal for our young people, the protocols and things we're doing to, to, to give them a chance to compete. I've never seen done in athletics in almost 40 years of doing this. And so our young people encourage me and, and, and get me fired up and to know that we get a chance to compete sometime soon is is really exciting. And, and so that's where the hope is. And I hope that somewhere along the way we get to you know, put some rings on fingers and enjoy some opportunities to watch young people graduate and do what they do. And that's the best. I love that much. I don't know, Eric, if you want to follow that up, because that was a pretty terrific, inspirational moment there. But anything that's giving you hope and optimism for the future. Yeah, that was great, Mitch. I, I think uh, what we went almost five months, Carla, where it was hard to find a lot of students on the campus. Mm. And for someone like Mitch and someone like me, who's been at it almost 25 years, always on a college campus environment in the SEC, it's schools, that, that's tough. Right. It, 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 you miss the, the life of a campus. I mean, you don't work in higher ed unless you love the campus life and the campus environment. So it was almost five months to the day when the students started moving back in and to be able to walk around and see that experience, to see a line at the bookstore, right, mm -hmm. to stand in the Starbucks line when we used to not want to stand it and you want to stand it because you're six feet apart. and We're all wearing masks or my joy uh, probably is the highest on Monday and Wednesday at two o'clock when I'm teaching a course in the student center in a physically distanced in, environment for 80 students I teach in finance each semester. And every one of them's wearing a mask and we're having great dialogue and we're doing what we're supposed to do. Learn and get to know each other and build community and stretch our thoughts and try to improve ourselves through this college experience. And so, uh, that's uh, that's what I look the most forward to, and that's what gives me the most hope, because those students are here. They want the experience. They want to be here. Their parents want them here, and we're able to achieve it, and our goal is to get to November 25th and doing everything we can to get there. Well, I, I think that is a great place to start wrapping it up, and I want to thank both of you um, for the insights that you've shared today. I want to wish you the best of luck as your academic year continues as your athletics start out. I would um, be remiss if I did not add, um, I have family in Kentucky. So I have a great aunt who lives in Bardstown, Kentucky, outside Louisville uh, in her 80s, who is very excited for some Kentucky Wildcats football and basketball this year. So uh, for her and for all of your fans and your community, we wish you the best of luck. And we so appreciate the time you spent with us today. Thank you, Carla. Thank you, Carla.
Thanks again for listening. Join us again next week when EAB's Caitlin Maloney dives into the world of testing and contact tracing with Quest Diagnostics Senior Director of Marketing, Stacia Ravello. They separate fact from fiction in terms of capacity, turnaround times on college campuses, and they take a look at tracing strategies from the very low-tech all the way to the truly state-of-the-art mobile contact tracing platform developed and used at MIT. See you next time on Office Hours with EAB.